Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And uh, let me read on uh, just a couple more verses. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. That is an atoning sacrifice is what you might have in some of your translations. We're going to look at that more carefully in the weeks to come. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Have you ever had a conversation? I know this has happened. You had a conversation with somebody, and then as you've walked away from the conversation, or as you've driven away from the conversation, or whatever it is, then you start thinking of all the things you should have said. You know, it's a conversation in which there was some disputation that was taking place, some disagreement, or at least they weren't seeing clearly what it was you were trying to communicate and they were coming up with other ideas and you were trying to project to them. And then as you're moving away or driving, you think of all the things you could, I should have said this and I should have said that. And, and then the other thing you do in reviewing it is you, you begin to think about what they said and you begin to think, well, maybe they had a good point there or a good point there or maybe they had a misperception and it's gathering together their conversation and what they said and what you said and you almost as a result form a brand new conversation that you wish you could have with them, but you don't even know how to start it again, how to go back to that point in time. And those are not bad exercises. They're usually exercises where you're, I hope, learning to listen to the other person better, but you're also learning how to phrase something better, or you're coming to an understanding or an idea better, and you're crystallizing your own thoughts. Different people think in different ways. I think verbally. And so when I'm working on something, I hear the argument in my head, but Oftentimes, I can't flesh out the argument unless I have the sounding board to talk to. And so, very often when I'm trying to figure out an idea, I bring, call my mother or I call my wife or I have a conversation. Uh, once a week, I meet with different young men, individuals in our organization. I meet with my son on one day a week, and I usually meet with Ignacio on another day a week. And, you know, we're usually there to talk about the ministries that we're doing in different places around the world. But most of the time, we talk about the ideas we're getting and the thoughts we're having as we're studying God's Word and we're teaching other individuals. And it's in the process of that dialogue that we, we kind of shape our thinking and it, it gets solidified and it gets challenged. And, well, that's a good thing. It's a good process to go through. Paul, in this case, in what he's writing here, he's not looking back on past conversations, although he's drawing from them, but he's actually looking ahead. Maybe you've had these kinds of conversations too where you're anticipating meeting somebody and you're anticipating what they're going to say. In your mind, you're running through how it is you're going to have that dialogue and that's what Paul is doing in the first part of Romans here. It's actually in the Greek form that's called diatribe, which basically is this dialogue, an imagined dialogue that's taking place. In the letter that Paul is writing, he's imagining that he's trying to bring the wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to individuals who are stuck and steeped in their paganism and their idolatry. And he's got a message for them to kind of refute and put aside their idolatry. But then he confronts individuals who are aloof from the idea of being idolaters. Instead, they're very moral people. And they've kind of anchored themselves in their own morality. And they think they're just good people. And Paul begins to dissect and tear apart this moral mindset they have. That that's enough. And then he confronts the Jew who is actually confident in his religion. And is in his status as the people of God. As a member of the 
tribe or of the nation of Israel and they're anchoring their confidence and their standing before God and their state in the world because of their religion and their national position. Paul begins to tear that all apart. Basically, with all three groups, he brings them down to the point at which they realize that they're not righteous in any way, that they're building on a foundation that's rotted. It's the foundation of what they are at the core of their being, which is broken, fallen, sinful people who cannot in and of themselves produce a righteousness that satisfies God, that answers the righteous claims of God against them. It doesn't overcome their sin, and it doesn't bring them in any way, in a possible way, they can present themselves to God. And if you follow these individuals, you kind of have a story of human life as it is. You know, individuals who have just given themselves to their idols and their self-worship, and it's debased them, and they feel that, in their case, once they realize that they're so corrupt, they can never be restored to God, and Paul has a message for them. And then you have other individuals like, well, I'm better than that. I'm a moral person. I'm better than that guy, and I'm better than that guy, and I'm certainly better than my neighbor that lives behind me. And, you know, he's approving himself. That kind of moralistic confidence has to be torn away as well. And then other people who have just discovered the right religion and the right things to do, and they believe all the right things, and they genuflect in all the right ways. They have a way of putting on the sanctimony of their faith, and it secures them, and Paul rips that all away as well. You get nothing. You cannot come before the presence of a holy and righteous God in these ways. You're lost, and you're separated from Him, and... Paul leaves them off in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, is all of them guilty before God. All of them guilty before God. And all through that, Paul punctuates it by saying, this guilt brings upon you condemnation, which brings upon you God's wrath. You have no way out. And then when they finally come to the point where they realize they have no way out, Paul interrupts all of this by telling them that there is a way that God provides. After Paul basically tells them that all of their efforts and all of their failures and all of those things that have accumulated just demonstrate that there's no righteousness they can produce on their own and all of the presentations of righteousness that they try to present are things that God scoffs at will never ever fulfill them and bring them into the presence of holy God once he brings them to the end of themselves then he says now now let me give you some light let me give you some good news there's a righteousness that is enduring that's been accomplished for you that God brings to you and it comes to you and it's to be received by faith and he brings it to you through Jesus Christ. This is what we've been talking about on verses 21 through 23 of Romans chapter 3. I want to make two more observations about these verses that we've been looking at before we press on. I want us to think again of that word now. What we said was here was individuals who were in this kind of long slog of just trying to measure up, trying to be righteous only to know that they couldn't quite get there and they failed. And even a person was just so confident that he had made it and that he was a good person, that confidence was shattered the minute he came into the presence of a righteous and holy person. The Pharisees thought they had made it. They had accomplished a righteousness, and it was a righteousness that was shattered in the presence of Jesus Christ. He ruined the curve for them, and they hated him for it. They had developed such a well-groomed facade. Everybody believed they were righteous, and they began to believe it themselves. They could stand in the front of the temple and say, Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like this publican because I do this and this and this. And Lord Jesus shows up and comes along, and he's exuding and manifesting that perfect sinless righteousness. And all of the old insecurities began to come back in them, and it tore them apart. And instead of accepting it and coming before God and receiving the righteousness God had for them, they sought to destroy the messenger. Jesus, who'd revealed that to them. It wasn't going to work. 
That's life. It's this long slog trying to be good enough and trying to be righteous enough and we'll never get there. In fact, it's futile. It's never going to work for us. And God comes to us in the middle of that and says, now listen, instead of this past progression where you're just trying to be righteous and then maybe hoping that somewhere in the future, maybe out into heaven somewhere or maybe through purgatory, you can work it out. And so you've even planned out some way for you to finally come to a point of righteousness somewhere in the far off distant future. God has a now for you right now. God can bring you into a complete righteousness. That's a historical moment for the individual. The moment when I recognize my sin and I recognize my failures and I recognize there's nothing in myself that I can commend to God and, but that God would give me through Jesus Christ all of his righteousness and I can believe and trust in him and in that moment all those efforts are brought to an end and I can step into the righteousness and the fullness of Jesus Christ. We said it before, it's like an eternal now where I'm in a state, an endless state of the fullness of all the righteousness of God laid upon me. It's a wonderful historical moment that comes upon us in our lives. But I do want to say here that when Paul says now, he's referring not only to that opportunity, but he's also referring to a contemporary event. Paul is writing at a time in which the news is being heard for the very first time of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and that Christ has come and lived on the earth the sinless life, and he's died, and that the Messiah has come, and he's suffered for you, and he's bringing news within the frame of the historical moment, and so when he says, now a righteousness has been made known or revealed, he's also referring to that great and wonderful historical moment, when Jesus came and died, and for those that he's speaking to, now we think about it, it's 2,000 years ago, but for those he's He spoke to and he's declaring it to for the first time. It's like contemporary news. It's like here, it's in the papers right here for you to see now. This is taking place. And there's something that's important about this. Paul is not appealing to some new philosophy in life. Paul is not offering them a new standard of moral conduct they can be involved in. He's not appealing to just a new mindset they can have for themselves. He's appealing to a fact, a moment in history in which God, through Jesus Christ, has secured for them a way of righteousness they cannot secure for themselves. The Christian faith is not just a bunch of sublime ideas. It's not just the idea that you can't even be forgiven. It's not the idea that God is love and He just will forgive you and you can go on and have a good life and you just have to think positive thoughts. The Christian message is a message of a fact that took place historical moment of time which God sent forth his son who was born under the law and yet lived a sinless life and then went to the cross and died on the cross in our place for our sins and then to demonstrate that the payment he made for us was sufficient and satisfied the claims of God he rose again from the dead alive and righteous and he extends to us that salvation when we put our faith in him it's anchored in that historical moment and because of that now because of that now we might each step into it ourselves now and have a righteousness that comes from him alone. That's very important. We're not just a philosophy. We're not just a bunch of good ideas. This is not a truth that makes itself into Reader's Digest quotable quotes and somehow soothes us. It's not what it is. It's anchored in something historical, a true moment in time that God has brought to us. The other thing that we see in this passage was not only is this a historical moment, but what Paul says is, This is a moment that God was directing people to all along. 
that God was revealing that he was coming to this moment and he was going to provide this means of salvation and righteousness. God was always directing people into this provision from the very moment at which man fell into sin. So Paul says that this is a righteousness that comes to us apart from the law, which basically simply means it's apart from us keeping the law. It's not based on us being good and following a bunch of rules. It's a righteousness that God has provided because Jesus has kept the law perfectly and gives to us the merit of all of his righteousness. But then Paul goes on, to, although it is apart from the law, it's apart from our keeping the law, he says that it is a righteousness that God was giving witness to by the law and the prophets. That is, basically, he's saying that God was throughout the Old Testament pointing the way of righteousness that he was going to provide for people. God was revealing his holiness. God was revealing to people his righteous standards. God was revealing to people the sins that drove them away from him. God was revealing to him that he had a plan to pay for those sins and provide for those sins. And so God was revealing sacrifices that were representative of the substitute ultimately that he would give in our place. All throughout the Old Testament, God was teaching this lesson. And God was also throughout the Old Testament, and the stories that are told, showing the futility of trying to measure up to God in your own actions, in your own activity, that God would have to provide for you. So down through the Old Testament, God was putting forward these ideas. That's what Paul's saying. And making these things known to us. In other ways, and throughout human history, God was communicating these truths. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll see that after Adam and Eve sinned, that God provided skins, a sacrifice to cover them because they knew in that moment that they were sinful. In a sense, God provided the first sacrifice for them as a covering of the shame that was placed upon them. And you'll remember that Abel took a lamb, the son of Adam and Eve, and he offered that lamb up as a sacrifice to God. And there we see that this sacrifice stands a lamb for one man and one man's sin. Moses comes along and God comes and tells Moses, now I want you to gather the people together in families. And each family will take a lamb. It was the Passover lamb. And it would be the way in which God would work this together as a part of God's plan to provide their escape out of Egypt as God brought judgments upon the nation of Egypt. And God was going to bring a judgment of killing all the firstborn of Egypt. It was the last judgment that God brought upon the Egyptian people that loosened their hold on the people of Israel and, and released them from their bondage. But for the people to protect themselves against God's judgment upon the firstborn, every family was to take a lamb in their home and to sacrifice it, and then they were to eat the lamb together in a meal. And in this passage, you see that the lamb or the sacrifices provided for a family. Abel, a man. And then here in this passage, for a family, a lamb for a family. And then when God brought the people out into Sinai, God revealed to them a day in which their sacrifice could be made once a year for all the nation of Israel. It was the day of atonement. And there was a lamb that was sacrificed for the accumulated sins of the people of Israel. And so it was a lamb for the nation. A lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation. And, and then Isaiah 53, God through Isaiah reveals that there was a lamb that had come and was slain for all of us. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The lamb was a man who was coming to bear the iniquity of all. A lamb for all. A lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation. Extending out a lamb for all. God was revealing this all through Scripture. God was making this known throughout Scripture. The Old Testament was extending to people the promise and the hope that he would provide a sacrifice for them not only this, 
God was also revealing to him that the salvation they would ultimately receive was a salvation that would be brought out from his own righteousness. That he would give them a standing in a state before him from his own righteousness. And so in Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 6 and Jeremiah 33 verse 16, Jeremiah is describing in a sense the final ending point of the salvation of all the people when they'll be brought into this glorious new Jerusalem and they'll be exalting in God's salvation. And the name of the city is called the Lord our righteousness. It's God's righteousness that ultimately brings us in this settled state of complete salvation and the enjoyment of eternal heaven. It's what God provides. God was revealing this all along. God's been doing that in your life as well. In one way or another, throughout your life, God has been showing you that you're a sinner and that your righteousness is not enough. And God's been showing you that something has to be, you know as well, there's a payment for sin. There's something that comes due when we do things that are wrong. And God was doing all that so that you would know and understand that that payment was paid by him. He'll pay all the bills. He'll finish all the costs. He'll provide it all for you. And it's been provided through Jesus Christ. It's place. He'd give you all of his righteousness so you could come into his presence. Now let's go on to verse 24. Here it says that God's salvation is located in a work that justifies us. This righteousness that has been given to us from God is something that is justifying. And this word justification is the positive side of condemnation. Condemnation is the declaration of the sentence that is upon everyone who sins. In John chapter 3, verse 18, we're taught that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, all people are condemned already because they're all sinners that are living under a sentence of condemnation. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 36, tells us what that condemnation is. It says this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God is bringing a judgment upon them, and there is a sense in which his wrath is still pressing against them. His judgment is still pressing against them. That's their situation in condemnation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, actually describes all who are born as being born to be children of wrath. They're born under this condemnation and this judgment. And that's the condition of individuals in their sin. But against this, justification comes and it overrides this contemned state. It turns it upside down. It releases us from this sentence that was upon us as sinners and sets us free from it and what I want you to see here for a moment is that what this justification is, and to understand it, we have to, in a sense, understand what it isn't, or we have to understand what it is in all of its completeness. So the first thing I want you to see is that this justification that God works in the life of the person who believes in Him is more than being pardoned or forgiven of your sins. There are individuals who think, you know, if I could just be forgiven of all my sins, I could get to heaven, and here's a thought you need to know. It takes more than forgiveness of your sins to get to heaven, to, to be reconciled into God's presence. It's more than that. It's also more than just being exonerated or declared innocent. I don't know, I've met a lot of people that wish they could just go back and turn back the clock before that one really serious turn they made in their life or that one really bad decision or that one action that they feel really mars their resume. If they could just go back to some virginal moment before that, and they could just be pure again, that would be enough to somehow get them into heaven and God's presence. It's not that either. That's not what justification 
is declaring, although I think that's where God starts. God starts by forgiving us. God starts by, in a sense, exonerating us and, and declaring us innocent. But that's not as far as it goes. You think about it. You think of a parent who's raising a child who's just problematic. They keep doing certain things they shouldn't be doing. And say the little boy uh, doesn't seem to be getting what he's doing wrong. So the mom puts together a little whiteboard. And on the whiteboard, when the boy is bad and he does a naughty thing, the mom writes out what it is so the boy understands very clearly what they've done wrong. And so the whiteboard just keeps getting built up. You know, one day is just a bad day. You know, little boys do and little girls sometimes just have a bad day, right? And so the day comes in which that little board is getting filled with one little naughty activity after another naughty activity after another naughty activity. And it's all mounting up as a sentence against him. And, and the mother says, you know, this is too much for me to address. When your daddy gets home, he's going to have to address it. And so by the time the father gets home, there is a, a whiteboard that's almost black and not white. It's just filled with all the information that this little naughty little boy has done. And now the dad comes before that little boy and the little boy is waiting for, you know, judgment to fall upon them. And the dad says, well, I... I see that you've had a really bad day. You've had a really bad day. But you know what I'm going to do, son? I'm, I'm going to forgive you of it today. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to discipline for you. I'm going to forgive you for this bad day. And you know what? I'm not going to just forgive you. Dad gets out on a race. I'm going to erase it all. I'm going to wipe it all clean so none of that is against you. And tomorrow when you wake up, there's not going to be any writing on that board. You get to start that day all over again. The new day tomorrow. It's going to be a new day. All right? We can work on these things tomorrow. And oh, what a relief that would be as a little boy to think, oh, I no punishment. I'm forgiven. And, and I, get a, I get a do-over. I get a start-over with a clean slate on the new day that's coming. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful opportunity. What joy would come to that little boy's heart. Now, for individuals, they think, that's salvation. See? I just want to be forgiven. And just give me a clean state to start again. But... That's not what God does for us. That's not what justification is. It starts with that. God forgives us. He doesn't punish us for all the writing that's against us. And then God blots it all out. He wipes it all clean. And, but he doesn't st stop there. Justification, what God does is he, he writes down all the righteousness that Jesus Christ has fulfilled perfectly in keeping all the law. He writes on that board all the goodness and all the grace and all the kindness and all that Christ did perfectly in every single way. And he puts our name on it. He credits to us. We are given all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is something more than forgiveness. That is something more than exoneration. Justification applies to us. The complete righteousness of God. Now that's, well, how do you get your mind around that? How do you understand that? But that's how God receives us and how God sees us and what God accomplishes in, in justifying us. How does this happen? Well, Jesus himself says it's like a dress that we put on. It's like a garment that we put on. We put on, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we clothe ourselves in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's not by our works, and it's not by our labor, and it's not by our effort. In fact, here's what is required to get to heaven. Not only do you need to be forgiven, not only do you need to have wiped away the, the sentence and all the declarations of all the sin in your life so you're exonerated, but then you have to be given this perfect, gleaming, glowing, overcoming righteousness that you didn't produce, that God lays upon you because he places upon you his dress. We looked at Matthew chapter 22 as our scripture reading where Jesus shared this parable. Kind of seems a bit of a strange parable, but a, a king puts on this great wedding feast. 
He basically says this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. It's like this great royal wedding feast. And you know, in those days, a royal wedding feast was opulent. It could go on for days. There are individuals who still didn't want to come to it. They didn't want to receive it, and they denied it. And so the king sends out messengers to go on the highways and byways and find anyone. And who's worthy to come to it? Anyone who received the invitation is worthy to come to it. Just receive, good or bad, regardless of what they've done, just receive the invitation. You can come to this wedding feast. When you came to the wedding feast, the king provided everything for the feast. He provided all the food. He provided all the comforts. You know what else he provided? He provided the garments for the wedding feast. He provided the clothes so when the people came, they clothed themselves in what the king had ordered and stitched and perfectly made for them to wear to come to the feast. There's an individual who shows up, but he won't put on the garment that the king has provided. He's going to go in in his own garment, in his own way to come to the feast. And because he won't put on the garment the king has provided, he's thrown out from the feast. The story is this. God has provided Heaven is a great feast. The Christian life is meant to be a great feast. And God pours out upon you abundance of blessing that he wants to give to you. And you can receive and live in and exalt in. And and it will go on forever and ever. And yet to receive it, you not only have to be forgiven. You not only have to be invited and then forgiven and then exonerated. But you have to be clothed in the righteousness that he's provided for you. That's what it means to be justified. It's a wonderful thing. A wonderful state and a wonderful standing. And and you know what? I can't take credit for any of it. And neither can you. It's all of Jesus. It's all of his righteousness. All of his dress. And I just just believed in him and received it. Look what it says here. Second thing here is this salvation flows as a spring from the gracious nature of God. This salvation flows as a spring out upon us from the gracious nature of God. It says we are justified freely by his grace. Now, if you've grown up in the church or an evangelical church, the emphasis here is that it's not something you can work for. It's not something that you can gain by purchasing by your good works. It's, it's something that, that God gives to you and something that you have to receive simply by faith. And that's, that's true. That's there. It's not something you work for. It's something that's freely given and freely received. But it's saying something more than that. When you look at this passage, what it's saying is that salvation comes to us freely because it flows to us out of the nature of God, who's gracious, who gives everything freely. The Bible says that God is the giver of every free and perfect gift. There's not one benefit, one blessing, one grace that's poured out upon your life from just the air that you breathe to the life that you live and then all the benefits of love and relationship. There's not one good thing that you've ever received from God in your life that you paid for. You don't buy any of it. No one does. It flows Out of the gracious heart of God. God is a giver. And he gives things graciously. God, the Bible says, is kind to all. God, the Bible says, is good to all. God is generous. God has nothing to sell. Nothing to sell. Everything he gives is a gift. Everything is a gift of his grace. So when the Bible says you're justified freely by his grace, it's it's rooted in this nature of God as a giver who's gracious and he pours it out upon us and... Actually, the Bible says there's only one thing you can earn from God. It's death. It says the wages in in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What you've done with your sin is you've bought for yourself a judgment that you don't want to face. But then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
He just wants to give it to us. It flows out of his heart. It flows richly and, and fully and completely upon us. You know, added to this idea is not only does this grace flow out upon us, but it flows out upon the undeserved. It's not simply that it flows upon an individual who is not being asked to pay for it by himself or to find whatever moral coins he has in his pockets or just right ideas he has in his pockets to lay out and say that I deserve it because I've come upon this myself. But it's actually coming upon individuals who are not only not asked to pay for it, but individuals who are deeply indebted to God already because of their sins. People who have, because of their sins, earned a wage of death, and yet God is pouring out, pouring out this grace Grace upon grace in their lives. Their lives are forfeit because of their sins, but God, instead of bringing that to them, God is holding back, and instead God is bringing His grace to them. This is the testament and true story of every life. It's even before you ever receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You still are living under the grace of God. You're here today. Wherever your spiritual state is, you're here today because God has been good to you. And God has sustained you, and God has kept you, and God has provided good things for you. And this is true for anyone who falls into the hearing of what we're saying here today. It's true of those who don't fall into the hearing of these things. God is being gracious to them. God is being good to them. Psalm 103, let me read to you. I think it's verses 8, 9, and 10 of Psalms 103. The whole psalm is a wonderful psalm. Here's what the psalmist writes. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and graciousness is getting what you don't deserve. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Here's the part I want you to read verse 10 here. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Can I just say you haven't yet got what you deserve? (laughs) You know, every single day, you know, we engage people this way. We make a judgment of what they're like and what their life is like, and then we begin to, whether we know it or not, we begin to enforce judgments upon them. We've figured out who they are, and we start treating them as we've figured out who they are, right? God knows exactly who you are and the substance of what you are. God knows the depth of your sin, which is described in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. But God has not dealt with you God has not engaged you according to what he knows of your sin. God, in spite of that, has continued to be merciful and gracious to you and to pour benefits out upon you. And he's done this in order that he might lead you to the full measure of his grace. If you would put your faith in God, would pour out upon you all of his righteousness so that you could stand before him clothed and cloaked in the perfect and complete righteousness of God. This is wonderful and this is true and He's a God who makes righteous the unrighteous, who makes just the unjust in the fullest expressions of his graciousness. That's where this giving God and this gracious God is incessantly pouring out benefits and blessing upon his creation brings us to the full expression of that graciousness when he pours over us and upon us his own perfect righteousness. That's what it means to be justified. Justified is in a sense when I'm living under the complete and utter and finished work of the gracious tide that God would pour out upon us from himself. It's all from God's nature. See, it's not just, well, I don't work for this, I receive it as a gift. That's true. That's true. You don't work for your salvation, you receive it as a gift. But it's a gift that comes out of the fullness of this tremendously gracious God that you'll never understand. Because that's true. And if you live in that grace, 
one of the applications to me is you better be very gracious with other people. That would be suitable for us. Instead of labeling people's sins and then calculating how we're going to treat them according to what we know about them or what we think about them or our conclusions about them, why don't we try treating them in the same gracious way that God has always treated us? Continuing to be good and continue to be gracious and continue to be kind in order hopefully to draw us to a moment in time in which we would, under the stream of the goodness of God, repent and turn to Him and receive the final you might might say the final expression of that graciousness, all of his righteousness poured out upon us. God, that's what I want for these other individuals. That's what I'm praying for. I know what they're like. I know what they do. I know what their behaviors are. I know what the patterns of the sin are. But oh God, teach me to treat them like you treated me and you treat me. Oh God, fill me with expressions of grace, your grace. Oh God, and they're like, bring them to the day, the hour, the moment when they by faith receive your Son and believe in Him and find in Him all of their righteousness and their sins are forgiven and they're exonerated, the slate is wiped clean and then you write in all of your righteousness over them. And that's how they live and they'll ever live before you. That should be our desire. Well, we look at these things and we see that God has brought to us this justification, this gracious expression, but He doesn't do it by simply saying, I think I'll just justify these people. I'll just say the word and they'll be justified. He doesn't do it just with a declaration. He does it through a medium. This justification he brings to us is free to us, but it is costly. But he pays the cost himself. And so it goes on to say in this passage, we are being justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And that word redemption is referring to a price that was paid in order that we might be given this and receive this free justification. And the price that was paid is that Jesus came and he paid the price of our sins. We look at these justification, redemption. If you're like me and you went to seminary and you've kind of grown up in the church and you read your Bible, you know these definitions really well. And because you know them well, it's easy for you to just say, I know what that means and gloss over it and move forward, but let's not. Redemption here is, it's a picture of an individual who's being bought back from slavery, from bondage. In this case, the Lord Jesus comes along and he finds us bound in the slavery that we have sold ourselves to because of our own sins. The bondage of our own sins and living in a world that's bound by sin around us. And he finds us in this enslaved state and he purchases us and sets us free from that bondage and that slavery. But the price that he pays to set us free is his own life. He gives his life instead of our life, and he enters into the, our sin in order that he might release us from it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me read these to you. Knowing that you are not redeemed, that is, you're not bought back from your slavery with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. You learned how to sin. You learned it from your moms and dads. But with the precious blood, you redeem with the precious blood the costly precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The other day I was looking at and they were discussing the life of a galley slave in the Roman world. And the galley slave was chained at the bottom of the boat and he lived at the bottom of the boat and he ate at the bottom of the boat and he slept at the bottom of the boat and he drank and he didn't move from that seat. And he was there all the time that he was out pulling the Roman navy around in their boat and until they came into port, and then he was released for a period of time to be put in a holding cell until he's brought back and chained there again. And he lived there and he died there. 
They pointed out that it was even worse if you were a galley slave to one of the different Middle Eastern powers other than the Roman power because you never were removed from that place. Even when the boat came into port, you remained chained in that boat, in the belly of that boat, and you lived there until you died. That's the slavery. That's the idea of slavery that Christ has entered into, set us free from. I'll go there and I'll take your place and I'll set you free and I'll redeem you. I'll redeem you with my life for your life and your place. But there's a little something more here. It says we're redeemed in Jesus Christ. A person may die in your place. It happens. An individual may take the bullet that you should have taken, take the punishment you should have taken. There's some wonderful stories like that in history, which individuals have given their life for another person and sacrificed their life for another person, fallen on a grenade or whatever it is. And that person, in a sense, that moment of death, they were redeemed from that moment of death by that person paying the cost of their own life. And yet the next day, they had to wake up to live their life again. And who knew? Who knows? Maybe another grenade will fall before them the next day and their life will be required of the next day and they were redeemed for a moment or an hour. That person gave his life but they're gone now and now you've just got to go on with your life and hope that you don't face the payment later on. But here it says we're redeemed in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus not only redeems us and gives us his life and our place for our sin but he gives his life for us not only to set us free from the bondage we're in but to take us up into himself. He's risen from the dead and he's alive and our redemption is secured in him i'm redeemed in christ i'm brought into christ i'm brought out of slavery and i'm brought into him and he ever lives he's always accomplished the victory and it always stands on my behalf so my redemption is secure forever i'm not redeemed one day and then lost the next i'm redeemed in jesus christ not simply by him in him secured safe provided for, payment fully made. And then that payment, God incessantly pours out upon me all the righteousness of Jesus Christ, fully, completely, wonderfully. (laughs) See, these passages are saying a lot, aren't they? These things that we're reading are not something we can read over with a glance. They're worthy of a deep gaze and we'll never entirely understand it. These passages, this passage actually three times, possibly four, will reiterate that this truth and these realities are received by us by faith. When you really grasp what we're talking about, what Paul is revealing here, what God is revealing through Paul, then you understand that this faith is not just a sentimental notion. This faith is not just an emotional turning point for a second This faith is not just an intellectual notion. This faith is a complete consigning of our life over to this truth because it's it's so good and it's against everything that's against us and it overcomes all of our condemnation. It's not just, well, I, I think I'll believe this now. Yeah, that's how I'll approach life with that kind of... No. This faith is a settled thing where you cling to Him. It's not an expression of your strength. It's a faith that's an expression of your complete desperation. Without it, you just grab a hold of it. Because all the answer is there. All the answer is there. All the answer is there. And then the just live by faith. Because all the answer is there. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.
That's the invitation you're giving to us, O oh God. That's the life that you're calling us to. Because of all that you've poured out for us so freely out of your graciousness. Because of the cost that was paid to redeem us and buy us back. Because of the rich overflow of the affections of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would shower upon us. In light of what we are without these things, broken, fallen, sinful, in a futile effort to prove ourselves and never being able to, Desperate, desperate life. And this is what you give us? Then give us a desperate, clinging faith. Help us to live in it every single day. Holding on to you. Confident in you. Laying all of our hopes in Jesus because by faith, he's drawn us up into himself. Lord, may that be the moment and hour of faith for those who have yet understood it. Jesus is everything. His salvation is all. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. We'll ask you, dear God, that you'd work that understanding thoroughly in our hearts. And for those who believe in you and trust in you, but then somehow have turned back to some confidence in what they have become, and from some perch of acquisition, they've cast their judgments on others. Bring us back under the cross. Bring us back under your mercy and your grace. Help us to remember that you have not dealt with us according to our sins. And teach us to deal with others as our Savior has. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.